We're now coming to God's Word. If you remain standing, uh, we're looking at 2 Timothy this morning. You'll find it on page 995 in the Church Bibles, 995. And this is a new series. This is going to be our summer series this year. It's going to be in uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy. And uh, we've called this series The Essential Church. The Essential Church. And uh, the title for the message this morning is, We're in this together. So it's easy in a big church like this to think that someone else will do it or it's someone else's responsibility. And very much the burden of uh, my heart and the burden of this message, this passage this morning is, We're in this together. We need each other. You're needed. We're all needed. We're in this together. So let's uh, hear then from God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remembered you, uh, rem- remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is God's Word. Amen. Do please uh, take a seat. So why 2 Timothy? This is our series this morning. Why are we looking at the book of 2 Timothy? Let me introduce it for you in this way by telling you a story. In fact, two stories A tale of two churches, a story of two churches. The first church um, began very well and grew quite fast. It's a very dynamic church. Increasingly, it had a ministry, not just locally, but globally. And yet, as it uh, carried on its way, at some point or other, things began to go a little wrong. Here's another story of another church. This church also began well and also grew and also had a ministry um, locally, regionally, globally. Like all churches, indeed like all human institutions with humans involved of any kind, it had its fair share of difficulties and troubles and even sin. 
And yet for this church, when there was a storm, it somehow managed to weather that storm. What's the difference? So the reason why I picked 2 Timothy for our summer series is because I believe that Paul, in his writing of this letter to Timothy, helps us understand what the difference is. And what I, the way I summarize it is the essential church. Essential in two ways. Essential because it is focused upon what is essential. So throughout this letter, Paul will mention various difficulties that were going on in the church in Ephesus, and there were difficulties. And what he calls Timothy to do is to stick to what is essential, namely the teaching of the Bible that focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So essential in that sense, but also essential in the sense of indispensable. You cannot do without it. So this kind of church is not just a church of religious efforts. It's the living church of God. It's indispensable for the plan of God. And the sermon this morning I've called We're in This Together because Paul, the great apostle Paul, is writing his second letter to Timothy, actually the last thing he, as far as we know, ever wrote. Paul is in jail and he realizes that his trial is not going well. He knows he's about to die. And he writes this letter to Timothy, his protege, saying, in effect, over to you. You need to take responsibility. It's not just about me. We're in this together. Over to you. You need to take responsibility. Reminds me a little bit of um, the American psychologist M. Scott Peck, who in one of his books described how, in his view, America needed another statue to balance its most famous statue on the other coast. So, of course, on the East Coast, there is the Statue of Liberty. According to the American psychologist M. Scott Peck, he felt in many ways America needed a statue on the West Coast to balance the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, the statue on the West Coast being the Statue of Responsibility. And in a sense, that, I think, is what Paul is saying in these first few verses. Over to you. You need to take responsibility. We're in this together. And he does it basically in in three ways. First way is about discipleship. Second way is about gifting. Uh, The third way is about gifting. The second way is about prayer. Discipleship, prayer, and then gifting. First of all, discipleship. This is the first couple of verses of uh, 2 Timothy. Discipleship. So you look down there, you'll see that Paul is writing his letter in a standard way that ancient letters were written. 
Ancient letters had a particular format of writing uh, and as, as we do today in, in our emails. If you're writing an email, it's from, to, and then the subject. Similarly, in, in ancient letters, there was a standard way of writing a letter. And Paul here is following that standard way of writing a letter. But each time he writes his letters in this standard way, he inserts into the pattern a particular theology or particular emphasis. And here I think what he's inserting into this pattern is this little phrase, my beloved child. My beloved child. Now, of course, Timothy was not physically the son of Paul, but spiritually he was. Paul had discipled Timothy. Discipleship. Let me ask you a question. Who is discipling you? Let me ask you another question. Who are you discipling? See, church is not just about going to church, receiving a sermon, receiving communion. Church is about discipleship. Who are you discipling and who is discipling you? You say, well, I I don't know. I don't know how to do that. I I don't know what that's like. Let me me tell you what it's like. Someone who discipled me and someone I discipled. When I went up to university as an undergraduate, like most students at 18, I was pretty clueless. I had no idea what was going on. I was a Christian, but I didn't know the lay of the land. I didn't know what was coming next. There was a Christian meeting at that university. I didn't know it existed. A teacher of mine from high school was doing graduate work at that university at the time. He invited me out to a restaurant. There were no text messages or emails then, so he wrote a note to me and said, I'd like to take you out to a restaurant one evening. Is that okay? Well, being a student, food always sounded good, especially when it was free. So I went out to the restaurant with this uh, former high school teacher of mine, and we had a good time at the restaurant. And after the end of the restaurant, he said, there's a Christian meeting tonight. Would you like to come along? Well, I had nothing else to do, so I went along. And the person preaching uh, that, 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 that evening was someone well-known to many of us called Don Carson, D.A. Carson. I've often thought, what would have happened if that high school teacher of mine had not taken the initiative simply to ask me out to eat with him to a restaurant and then invite me to the Christian meeting. Here's how I define discipleship in my own mind at least. Discipleship is intentional friendship for the purpose of spiritual growth that is tailor-made for the person being discipled. Intentional friendship for the purpose of spiritual growth that has been tailor-made for the person being discipled. Or to put it more simply, what's the next step? And the next step I needed to take was simply to go to that meeting. But I wouldn't have taken it if he hadn't initiated intentionally with me. I'll tell you about someone I discipled. I was, uh, you know, obviously graduated by this time from university. He was a student. 
I got to know him. When I first met him, I don't think I've met anyone more cocky or self-assured in my life. He was extraordinary. He really thought the world was his oyster. And he was gifted, but he had a lot to learn. I just kind of rolled with the punches, kept on pointing him to Jesus and the Bible, letting God do in him what God would do. And now this individual is the senior pastor of a very large church. Let me ask you again. Who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? Every Paul needs a Timothy. Every Timothy needs a Paul. For we're in this together. First, discipleship. Second, prayer. This runs in the passage from about verses 3 to uh, verse 5, and there you'll see Paul's prayer. When Paul describes how he prays in his letters, he's not doing it to boast about his prayer life. He's doing it as a model for us to emulate and to pray to. And so we see, when we see Paul praying, when we read about Paul praying, what we should be thinking is, what does that tell me about how to pray? And here we see that uh, Paul is uh, praying in a very passionate way. There are tears. We can see that Paul is praying with uh, great specificity. He knows Timothy. He knows his family. He thanks God for his mother and his grandmother. He's he's praying. He's not just, Lord, bless them. He, He knows them, and he's praying for them. You can see that Paul here is praying with great consistency, night and day, day and night. You may say, how on earth do you do that? Well, the only way to pray with this kind of consistency is simply to plan it out. Simply to plan it out. I can tell you how I do it. And there are many other ways of doing it, and this is by no means the only way to do it, but this is how I found it helpful. First of all, I use a simple um, way of reminding myself the right pattern of prayer. I call it stop. So first of all, you stop and remember who God is and all his glory. You stop. And then each of those letters remind me of one thing. S, sorry, I confess my sins to God. Keep short accounts with God each day, each night. Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Sorry. T, thanks. I thank him for all his answered prayers, for all his blessings. Then I pray for others. Oh, and then finally for myself, please stop. If you plan it out, when it comes to that, oh, others, you can, you can pray for a lot of people with great specificity, even if you don't have an amazing memory to remind you, to memorize everything, everything that they've done in their lives or even remember their names necessarily. You can still pray with great specificity. What I do is I simply have on my computer calendar an extra calendar that I call prayer. And I schedule each day certain things I need to be praying for. So I have a, an entry, a repeating entry each day to pray for the elders. I have a repeating entry each day to pray for the pastors and directors. I have a repeating entry each day to pray for the deacons. And under that entry, I list all the names of the elders, all the names of the pastors and directors, all the names of the deacons. I have a repeating entry to pray for the members that is organized so I can get through the membership list in a a reasonable amount of time. So I'm praying for you. 
Pray for our missionaries. I pray, and a repeating entry for that, I pray for those who serve actually in the military because I think if, if we have children of our church who are serving on the front line, they need the prayers of their pastors. So I, I pray for those that I'm aware of that are serving in the military one way or another. It's just one way to do it, but you've got to plan it. It's not going to happen by accident. Uh, we have various tools as a church. We have a prayer calendar. We have an e-prayer that goes out each week. You've got to plan it out. You've got to schedule it out. Paul is praying with great consistency, night and day. He must have had some kind of plan because he was a busy man. But he also prays with great thankfulness. You know, that, that elevates your prayers, isn't it? It's, it's easy, isn't it, to see something and just moan about it and just complain about it. But instead, first, let's thank God and then come to prayer afterwards. He thanks God. And then, of course, he prays spiritually. You notice how he's praying about faith? I thank God for your faith. It's okay to pray for physical health. Of course, I do. I pray that for my children. I pray that for us as a church. But Paul's primary focus always is for the spiritual growth, the faith of God's people, that others would come to faith, to thank God for the faith that he has given those around us. It's a spiritual focus. Henry uh, Reese, when he was interviewing a candidate for the ministry to be ordained, at one point said this. He just said, praying, praying, praying. How we only understand a thousandth part of the power of prayer. One person went to see the great preacher Charles Spurgeon in his home in Westwood. And they talked to Charles Spurgeon about many things. And at the end of their conversation, they had prayer together. And as they came away, this person said, now we have seen the secret. For a man who prays like that will out-preach the world. Prayer. You know, the second great awakening that shook the whole of this country began by a little prayer meeting among businessmen on the streets in a little church in New York City. And that, that was the beginning. And who's to say that a little prayer meeting here in Wheaton couldn't be the beginning of the third great awakening? Don't we believe in the same God? Prayer. You need to pray. For we're in this together. Not just the pastors, you. And then finally, gifting. And this is uh, verses uh, 6 and 7 there. And you'll see that the uh, focus is very much on uh, Timothy's gifting. And um, Paul there describes the, the gift that Timothy had through the laying on of his hands. And then he says to Timothy, you need to fan into flame. You need to fan that gift into flame. It's, it's just a little... A little fire now. You fan it into flame. Gifting. Now, when we talk about gifting in a church, there is an immediate danger. <clears throat> and that immediate danger is people think 
If I don't have the gift for that, I don't need to do it. No. There's a, there's a higher commitment as a Christian just to service. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest among you is servant of all. We just are committed to serve. There are many things in church life. There are many things in home life. There are many things in the Christian's life that, that you need to do as an act of service that you may not feel gifted to do. I mean, for instance, who, who feels gifted to change diapers? I've got the gift of changing diapers, you know. They still need changing. And maybe that's the gift of mercy. I don't know. <laughs> and we can over-spiritualize it. You know, it's like something weird, like this gift. Oh, in the Bible, the gift can be administration. It can be that much underemphasized but crucial grease that oils the wheels of the church, namely the gift of encouragement. It can be something more spiritual sounding like teaching. Here's Paul talking to Timothy about his gift that he knew about through the laying on of hands, that is the formal setting aside of a pastor to the ministry of being a pastor through the laying on of hands, the actual physical laying on of hands that was done in the past and is still done today in churches. Paul is telling Timothy to remember his gift and then make the most of his gift. In other words, we need to identify our gift and then maximize our gift. Let me give you an illustration of that and then show you how to do it. The illustration comes <clears throat> from that um, now pretty old movie, Chariots of Fire. I don't know whether you ever saw it, but it's a movie about how people are going to compete in the Olympics, athletes. And one uh, Olympic athlete is looking for a professional trainer. And he interviews this professional trainer. And the trainer says, I need to come and see you race because, talking about gift, you cannot put in what God has left out. I can't give you a gift. You cannot work to get a gift. It's a gift, a gift from God. You can ask for it, but it must be given. But then that trainer went to that race and saw this athlete uh, run, and afterwards he came up to him and said, I think I can find you an extra half a yard of pace. And they trained together. He magnified the gift and he went on to win the Olympic Games. You've got to identify it, and then you've got to maximize it. How do you identify it? There are all these gift surveys you can do online. There are classes you can go to to help you identify your gift. All that has a place. But what Paul is talking about here is something that happened communally. In the community, the way you identify your gift is what people in the church confirm is your gift. 
the thing that people come up to you and say, could you do this because you're good at it? That's your gift. If you're not sure, ask. Go up to someone in the church and say, you know, what do you think I'm good at? It's communally discerned. That's how you identify your gift. How do you maximize it? How do you fan it into flame? Of course, it depends what the gift is. But generally, you do it by training. That is, you read, you learn, you practice, you get feedback, and then you repeat. Read, learn, practice, feedback, repeat. Read, learn, practice, feedback, repeat. You're training. You're fanning it into flame. You know, I sometimes meet people who have the most amazing gifting, but they're not making the most of it. Magnify it. Sometimes meet people who just seem like they wish they had someone else's gift. And therefore, they don't magnify it. You know, it could be that that other person wishes they had your gift. Identify your gift. Maximize it. You need to take responsibility for that. Because we're in this together. We're in this together. Discipleship. Praying. Gifting. Let me uh, just leave you with this. There are different metaphors that have been used to describe what the church is. Is Some people think of the church as a uh, human organization. It's an institution. There's a uh, structure to it administratively. There's a polity to it. It's, a, it's an organization. And of course, to some extent, it is an organization, though it is more than that. Other people tend to gravitate to the uh, metaphor of church as a family. We're brothers and sisters. Of course, the church is a family. Other people tend to gravitate to the metaphor of the church as a community. It's the house of God. Of course, it is a community. All these things are Metaphors that have their, have their place. But you know, I've noticed that one metaphor for the church that used to be very common has almost entirely gone out of fashion. And that is the church as an army. We are in a spiritual war. I know why it's gone out of fashion. No one wants to think of the church as physically aggressive, of course. But it's a spiritual metaphor, a moral metaphor. Church militant used to be called. You've got to take responsibility. It's not passive. 
Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, look, you've got to take responsibility. I'm out of here. It's over to you. We're in this together. Through discipleship, prayer, and gifting. For the Lord did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for the good news that we have been called to a purpose. And that if we have given our lives to you, if we've trusted you, you actually have for us a purpose. There is something for which you are asking us to be responsible, to steward We pray then, Lord, that this spirit that you've given us of love and power and self-control will come mightily among us today. Encourage us to pray for each other, to disciple each other, and to make the most of the gifts that you've given. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.